All right, everybody, welcome back to season seven of Angel. Yes, this is the season where we're talking to what I call three cycle investors. This means they had to start their investing career during the dot-com bubble and then go through uh, the 2000s web 2.0 period and this last boom bust cycle. The longest one of my career, 14 years, we were in an up market. And then obviously 2022, uh, you know, was uh, a brutal year for all of us. And we're trying to ask these individuals who've been through three cycles, what do you do as the cycle restarts? What lessons do you take from it? It's really hard to find these people. There aren't that many of them available uh, because most VCs, they last one or two cycles. They hit a home run or they don't and they quit or they hit a home run or two and they quit and they call in rich. Very few of them will stick with it for three cycles because that means you've been working for three decades or so. So uh, on today's episode, we have Brian Roberts. He's been investing at FanRock for over 25 years. This is an extraordinary interview, which builds on the one I had with my friend Brad Feld, which a lot of you are raving about. Um, and we go super deep on the investor-founder relationship and what's special about that and, and when it works really well. Uh, and the most important keys uh, to be successful in your early days as an investor and just so much more. Uh, these are turning out to be some of the greatest interviews, I think, in the history of the podcast. It's going to be an amazing episode. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. Merge. Let your developers get back to their core product. Merge is a single API to add hundreds of integrations to your app. Integrate up to five customers for free today at merge.dev slash twist. And Velocity Growth is a growth marketing consultancy that'll help you attract, activate, and retain customers. Go to velocitygrowth.com slash twist and use code twist to get $500 off any growth audit or monthly package and they'll even give you a free 30-minute growth strategy session just by mentioning Twist. All right, everybody, we're going to continue our Angel Season 7 here uh, as we look back on investors who have invested through three cycles. Why is this important? Well, every time we go through a boom-bust cycle, there are things that are similar, there are things that are different, there are lessons learned, and I want to capture on video for the entrepreneurial and capital allocator community, these uh, individuals who have seen three wars, essentially, it's like getting vets. And today, uh, Brian Roberts is with us. He is, uh, I guess you're a GP at Venrock. I'm going to guess you have the title general partner, managing partner, partner, we partner. did away with a whole bunch of variations on that about 10 years ago. Yeah, why even? Yeah, yeah exactly. Everybody's here partnering to build companies. You've been in the yep. capital allocating and company building space for 25, over 25 years. years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> when I say that, what comes to your mind? What comes to mind is how much fun I have. Not actually with the finding deals or doing deals, but with the relationship with an entrepreneurial leader trying to do something the world thinks they can't do. And it's uh, always different, but it's always really intellectually interesting. Ah, it's a, it's a very interesting profession in that way. Uh, you get to place a bet on somebody and then work with them. Typically for how long to, to realize this oh, vision? 10, 15 years. I think you, I, honestly, I think you can, I think it takes 10 years to do anything of any particular consequence. So you're making a bet. People see Shark Tank, they see, you know, these crazy negotiations and this contentiousness, and they think that's what we do for a living here in Silicon Valley as capital allocators, as venture capitalists. Couldn't be further from the truth. That is a forgotten moment in time, in fact. Yeah. No, I, I look, it's um, the, the honestly, the capital allocation for me is it's the thing that allows me to keep doing it over over years. Right. Um, but it's a means to an end right mm. the, the 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 end and the interesting thing that keeps me doing it and hopefully is the the reason that uh people choose to have me involved with them rather than other people is the post investment uh council time in the foxhole together yeah. right and as you as you note like we we've we've been a little foxholeish <laughs> for the last 12 months this is, uh, yeah, really the point of this entire series is to to look at 
each of these cycles uh, and uh, what you learned in each of them. One of the things we've seen over time is that people who have early success as a venture capitalist have longevity as a venture capitalist. So maybe you could talk about your first two investments as a venture capitalist and how that got your career flywheel going. Sure, sure. So I joined Venrock uh, right out of my PhD in chemistry. I joined it uh, was sort of second or third year of the Kaufman Fellows Program. Hmm. The other thing that I might have gone and done was be a medicinal chemist at Merck in Rahway, New Jersey. That was the other job hmm. I had. And a guy named Tony Evnen, wonderful mentor, now retired decided to take a shot at inviting me in for a year or two right mm. and um god bless him he had a uh, an associate or you know whatever you call people coming up in the business um for six or seven years who just left and gone somewhere else and i show up like newbie knowing mm. nothing and i think he was like holy moly what have i done <laughs> and about 11 months in, um, I uh, found my first investment, which was the Series A of Illumina, the, mm. the DNA sequencing business. I think I got that deal because uh, I was working during August <laughs> when, the rest wow. of the venture, when the rest of the venture world was all doing. So like one lesson of 25 years is like elbow grease counts for an enormous amount, right? And like, in our business, what is elbow grease? What is elbow grease? In my mind, elbow grease is is but is the is the intersection of working hard and helping anybody that you can find in the ecosystem. Got it. Whether you've placed the bet or not, absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent, absolutely. Just just try and help. Yeah, the they're, the currency of this business is being helpful, and so when people say it's kind of been made fun of and mock now how can i be helpful <laughs> right the reason venture capital say how can i be helpful is because if you're known for being helpful somebody might say you know i had an idea and you were helpful to me this one time you don't remember it but i asked you what exactly. should i do with my career and then you gave me some good counsel and hey i'm starting this illumina this thing was started in 1998 yep. to do dna sequencing what did dna sequencing cost at that time Oh well, you know, the 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 first sequencing of the human genome was completed in 2000 for something like a billion dollars. Mm. Amazing, yeah. And, you know, very recently it became possible to sequence a genome for $200. It's so extraordinary. It's a, it's a it's a pretty good Moore's law Oof. slope. Yeah. And that yeah. that I mean and, and when things get that cheap and fast boy do opportunities yeah right emerge. you never know like the, that's the amazing thing about it right you never know like if you could take the cost of something down by a hundred thousand or a million times like mm -hmm. what would you do with it like you know what you know what nobody ever, ever has any knowledge it's one of the funnest things is making interesting bets that have market size risk right because mm -hmm. if you do something special that no one's ever done before a lot of times it's really hard to figure out how you're going to use it. Yeah. What is the market for a supercomputer in you, your pocket? You got it. Exactly. Like we, As it we, turns or, out now big. Yeah. It turns out <laughs> you can do a lot of things with it. The, you got it. There's a great William Gibson quote where he said, uh, the street finds its own use for technology. If you're a small business owner or you manage hiring at your company, you know that success in 2023 it's totally dependent on the team members you surround yourself with. Of course, that's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. It's really simple. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find more qualified candidates more efficiently, right? That's what you're looking to do. You want to get better candidates and you want to get more of them. And you know what? You also want to get them faster, right? You want to fill these open positions with the right person and you want to have choices. Well, the, they do this so simply over at LinkedIn because they have everybody with a profile. 875 million people are on LinkedIn. I mean, the march to a billion continues. And they do this by matching your open roles with people who have the skills, values, and experience to help you achieve your goals. So I can only speak from personal experience here, right? I can read the ad, but the truth is I found some of the most amazing team members at LinkedIn Jobs. It works better than any other hiring platform because they have the tools, right? And they have the network. It's all sitting there waiting for you. 
some of my top contributors from Launch It Inside uh, were found on LinkedIn. The targeting, the screening, the rating tools, it's all built in. It's simple, easy breezy, lemon squeezy. All of this is why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus the leading competitor. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. That's linkedin.com slash angel to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Yeah. And then the, is, so uh, the second the second investment was a was really the first of the new generation of healthcare IT companies, a company called Athena Health, um, sure. started by a, a Jonathan Bush and Todd Park. And that ended up working out okay. Honestly, like getting lucky early in your career is, uh, is super useful. Why is it so super useful? One, it convinced the um, it, it convinces the people in your organization that you should stick around. Ah. But two, you, you know, back to what are entrepreneurs looking for? Like they're looking for people who will help increase the likelihood and scale of their success, Mm. right? Like they're trying to solve problems or trying to do something. And if you get a reputation of having been associated with Mm. really successful businesses and the leaders in those businesses will be like, totally like Mm. Brian Roberts was super helpful to me. Right. Ah. So like um, John Stultnagel, who was the original uh, CEO and co-founder at Illumina, he and I are now involved in five businesses together. Wow. Right. So, you know, (laughs) God bless him. Like when you have one investment as a venture capitalist, you're either super dangerous or super helpful because you don't have Mm. a lot to do with your time. Right. Um, You know, I, I moved to San Diego for a month to help write their S1 to go public. Um, and I can remember walking into the senior guy at Venrock's office. I'm like, Hey, look, I'm going to, I'm going to go to San Diego for a month. He's like, we don't do that. Huh? And I was like, well, I appreciate that, but I can't think of anything that would be of more use than Mm. getting them public as quickly as possible. Um, and so if you come up with something that is of more use, you know, where I'll be, which is San Diego. Good getting back to how can I be helpful? What is the most useful thing I can do? At any point in time. At any point in time. Yeah, it totally makes sense. Now you talked about this, like, hey, I went to work in August, which everybody knows, you know, August is for Italy and December is for Aspen for VCs. (laughs) Yeah. They don't work 12 (laughs) weeks of the year. Uh, Those two months, plus or minus a week on either end, typically. So you're just banging around in Palo Alto and somebody says, totally. Hey, you got to meet this person or how so, did you no, meet a So Luna? actually at that point in time, I was in New York because ah. of the Venrocks, Venrocks, uh, you know, we were late, honestly, in, in moving a big locus of operations to California. Um, hmm. You know, we were in 30 Rockefeller Plaza, et cetera, um, as part of the Rockefeller family. And so I was in New York and um, they'd gotten some seed money and they called i think three or four venture firms um Mm. saying hey we're gonna do our a and they like made that call the last week of july or something and again you know i wasn't busy at the time (laughs) so i hopped on it um and by the time other people got organized man it may have been they had a whole bunch of board meetings and so they were they were busier than i was right or they Mm. or they could have been in italy or who knows um no they were in italy (laughs) but i ended up you know getting the work done and forming a relationship with the ceo and leader and uh john and it's been a terrific you know 20 years same thing happened at athena health right like i'm now involved in the company that todd and his younger brother ed todd and ed park started called devoted health um Mm. which is a you know big value highly valued terrific private business now wouldn't happen if i hadn't been involved in athena and hadn't been hadn't been of some use and this is where your network totally your deal flow becomes a driver of future success exactly so getting having an open calendar is a a great (laughs) driver of success because of serendipity like showing up matters Yep. yep for sure i agree so at some point the market corrects violently and uh that was called for a long time yeah and it, and it and it stayed down for a couple of years. Yeah, more so than the second one, right? Yeah, the second one was like felt like 
we had what maybe three to five quarters of choppy depressing yeah. like this much more NASDAQ. much more v in 2009 yeah. than you which you can see in the nasdaq right it went from oh. like five thousand to 1600 and then yeah so it starts its climb back up you got it no big deal but the dot-com bust was distinctly different because you had the dot-com bust and then you had 9-11 yeah so back-to-back -back cataclysmic events you know and very different ones but maybe take me to the time when it was peak market and did you know it was a bubble and how did your behavior change during the bubble of the dot-com bubble and then we'll get into the bust. i think at that point i was so young and inexperienced i had no real sense of perception about the whole thing mm. really right it feels tough now right mm. for folks you know what percent you you've you've been talking to folks uh, you know who've been through three wars like what have like 90% of people never been through one war until yeah, now. I think that's probably right. right? So and, this was a 14-year bull market, right? 13-year, 14-year right. like bull market. It's really hard that first time that you feel like you've been, you've grown up under a set of rules mm. and the rules just changed dramatically, uh, right? Like yeah. the ability to reorient yourself mm. um, is is hard and, and they frankly much of the first three quarters of 2022 was me spent spending time with leaders in portfolio companies saying like look like we need to we need to react to this environment right, right. like the, the world has action. changed yeah. exactly and it was amazing like in january of 22 people were like oh this hasn't really changed very much and then like by march april mm. they were like Oh no no no! It's changed, but thankfully we we're really efficient, so we're okay. We'll right? be okay, yes. <laughs> and then, like six weeks later, everybody had figured out they could take like twenty to twenty five percent out of their budget without mm. hurting growth. Right, like and it was a stunning arc. Stunning arc, and some people were quicker to realize the new normal than others. Yes, for sure, for sure. Back, but let's go back let's go back to your your question yeah. about like 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 what did i know i like i think the two things i learned in the aftermath of the those those various downturn events um one was times of stress and difficulty are really the only periods in which you learn anything about anybody <laughs> so true why is this true yeah um well shoot when the sledding's easy hmm. like no one has to make hard decisions right like the interesting thing is when you have to make hard decisions especially time frame decisions short term versus long term mm. or self-interested you know acutely personal decisions versus organizational ecosystem right example like, yeah. um you can make it an amalgamation it's going to be about one company yeah yeah, yeah. no sure um so you see it a bunch now in um companies deciding how to deal with their ex with their expense run rates mm -hmm. right um you see uh like, like some of the some of the the in more enlightened better leadership teams i see saying like look boy cash is tough we have a we have an annual performance bonus um we're gonna we're gonna pay out bonuses for below director mm -hmm. and and all the senior folks are not going to take any. Okay. Seems reasonable. Right. Seems like a mature so decision. You so, so you save a bunch of money. Yeah. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, like the senior folks, A, you know, the, they, if things go well, they benefit in a hugely outsized fashion compared, yes. compared to the, compared to the younger, rank and file, less yeah. experienced rank and file people. Right. Um, and they generally have substantively greater base cash comp. Uh, yeah right so they got better it, it, yeah so they, exactly. they they can take the hit exactly and um and with as with most of those things around comp it's so much in the messaging rather than mm -hmm. just the numbers right yeah. so when you go to the team and you're like look with times are tight right we need to we need to conserve wherever we can and as part of that the rank and file are get are getting are getting the performance bonuses and the and the senior folks are are not it makes it a lot easier 
for the whole organization to rally around mm -hmm. a whole bunch of other we need to do more with less aspects. Listen, it's 2023. Closing business to business deals is going to be harder this year because, let's face it, some companies are reducing their spend. These days, B2B buyers expect integrations in their products. We expect our people management tool to work seamlessly with our payroll provider, right? You expect your CRM to work seamlessly with your accounting software. And if it doesn't, well, that's a huge issue, right? And how are you going to do this all? Who's going to develop all of these integrations? When you start a company, integrations are critical. This is how you attract customers, but it's brutal and it can take a long time. And it's a never ending list of new software that needs to get integrated, right? Merge is a product that lets you do this very easily. Merge is the leading unified API that allows you to launch integration in days, not quarters. Basically, Merge enables your developers to never worry about integration maintenance. Merge offers currently over 150 integrations across five different categories, human resources information systems, HRIS, ATS, applicant tracking systems, you know about those, accounting, CRM, and ticketing. So when you use Merge, all of this is going to come together quicker, faster, and give you more features to offer to your customers and uh, here's your call to action. Merge has unlimited integrations and they charge based on how many of your customers use the integrations. So it's priced very fairly. They are going to give you five linked accounts for free today at merge.dev slash twist. Again, five linked accounts for free at merge.dev slash T-W-I-S-T. As a business, you need to create optionality for yourself in these times. That's probably the second piece of it. In addition to what does it mean? I mean, we understand what the word create optionality is. You have options. But what does it really mean yeah. for a startup to have options? So um, it means practical examples. Yeah. Practical examples um, are you don't build up expense rates in advance of revenue, expecting revenue to come. Mm -hmm. Right. In that case, That's probably the best for, example. Yeah. And that, that example is a fascinating one because what a founder will do is they'll be like, well, I'm going to deploy $3 million to create this product. It's going to generate in month one, $300,000 and in month two, $400,000. So it pays for itself. But you don't know if it even will make $1. You You're, don't. And it, it's, and actually it's interesting for me, at least the early, the, the early times when you're doing product development hmm. um, are less fraught with danger than early commercial. When okay. you're when you're building when you're building a commercial organization and everybody builds a commercial organization before they have lots of revenue, right? Sort of, it, it, it's tautological. You kind of have to. Um, um, so maybe the 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 way to describe it is you know anybody who anybody who has a product and goes out to sell it, you know, there's some amount of that revenue that would come in if you had no commercial organization at all, mm. right? Like they're finding you. And then, but everyone's like, I want to grow more. So they, mm. they put a bunch of commercial people on the ground. And so the efficiency of their customer acquisition goes down the, the, the more they try to grow. Right. Right. For the last 10 years, right? Like the, the, the penalty, the penalty of not quite hitting your milestones was you go out and raise an up round. Right. I mean, so, they talk about a perverse <laughs> reinforcement loop. Right. It's like. It. I just smoked crack. <laughs> I ran the mile faster and they gave me more crack to run the next mile faster. Wow. This is not going to end well. Don't smoke crack during the marathon is like literally we taught a generation of founders that raising money was the skill. Yeah. For not sure. making money. Yep. And 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 part of that was you know the whole growth at all costs super fast right yeah. don't worry about what your act what the actual unit economics of the business were so there were lots of people and like you all we, we all know this from other aspects of our lives like it's really hard to repair a car driving 80 miles an hour down the highway yeah you don't want to be changing the the yeah exactly the, you're right? fixing the carburetor at no 80. right and so the notion of get your together Right. Mm -hmm. Figure out figure out what you have, who will buy it, how much it'll cost, etc. Sort of the nail it before you scale it notion. Nail it before you scale it notion. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is that's that's the what that does is if you nail it before you scale it, that gives you optionality. Because if you're mm -hmm. if you're if you're spending, you're always spending money. If you're spending a little bit of money, not a problem. If you now have brought on a bunch of customers. 
but your margins are low mm. and your churn's high. So you're sort of running on the hamster treadmill to try mm -hmm. and keep things going. You're spending lots of money to do that. Yeah. And that paints you into a corner. So there is where the optionality comes in. Yeah. If you are not being thoughtful about your gross margins, if you're not being thoughtful about the unit economics, however you want to phrase the same thing, your profitability, and you haven't nailed product market fit, and you have nailed raising money at increasing valuations and making you feel good and giving you that dopamine hit, your net worth is going up, your cash balances are going up, the size of the people in your organization, you are literally getting all this incorrect signaling. It's right. It's short-term signaling, not long-term signaling, mm. right? But it, in your that's role what you're as doing. A capital allocator, how do you tell a twenty-five now as an elder statesman like we are? Yeah, uh, as an elder statesman, you got some thirty-year-old. <laughs> so who, the funny conversation, yeah. yeah the the funny The funny conversation these days is is sort of, you know, I'm like, okay, so you know, we have a V one of the product. Can mm. we agree? that in three or four years, this product's going to be a lot better than it is today. Everyone's like, oh, totally, right? Yeah, reasonable. Um, right? And you're like, so in, in three or four years, we'll be embarrassed. We'll, we'll, we'll bring this product back up and we will look at it. We'll be like, oh my God, this is embarrassing. This is dog Exactly, right? Why do we want to put dog out in front of more people than we have to? Mm. Like, we, absolutely, we need to go out and get some market feedback. We need some people to use it. Like stuff happens. Like you learn an enormous amount of really great stuff, right? Mm. But that's honestly, those customers are more continued product development than they are right. really growth and scaling. Right? right. So that's one conversation. Like the, what do I look like? Honestly, it's so funny. I it was three or four years ago. There was a venture guy who said, well, we just did the analysis and first meeting to term sheet is now nine days. And, and my response was, oh my God, I think mine's gone to nine months. Hmm. And it's all about knowing the people way better um, so that you end up looking for, so like something like 90% of the, of the leaders I'm involved with are first time leaders. Mm. right um and it's they end up hopefully being long-term focused givers mm. who have something to prove to the world right so that gets them working all the time super focused on it but it's not they care way more about what their efforts are going to look like in 10 years mm. than next year like a, a, a reasonable way to think about it is trying to figure out whether someone makes decisions consistently based on the notion of what would their sort of 10 year future self be proud of? Ah, yes. This sense of pride, mission, purpose. Yeah. Uh, and that long-term decision-making will be reflected in what this product looks like every month and the product velocity and the care and craft that goes into it. Whereas a generation has learned some really Bad habits. Bad habits. You know, it's such a an adrenaline pop when an unexpected term sheet comes in from some private equity firm for a hundred million dollars, and we didn't even ask them to yeah. give us this money. And they also want to give you know ten percent of it in secondary to the early investors and and CEOs. These are new. Um, the these venture new folks. Wrinkles. Yeah, the venture folks learned a lot of bad habits too. Well, let's talk about that because okay. in the early days. What were the bad habits that venture capitalists had in the 90s? What are the bad habits in this cycle? And then <laughs> when you look at the bad habits in the 90s, are there some that maybe now we should actually be a little more thoughtful about? One that comes to mind for me, uh, not to answer my own question, is governance. Because when I came into the industry, it seemed like people really seemed to care about this. Yeah. And maybe we're even, I don't want to say lording it over founders, but it was it did at times maybe even feel heavy-handed and then it felt like you were insulting people by wanting to even have a board meeting or to have projections and, and i'm an early stage investor I, they, even doing diligence seemed to offend yeah. some founders sure for sure um so 
well, one 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 bad habit uh, back at the tail end of the the dot com bubble was fund size, for sure, right? And fund you, size matters. Fund size matters. Explain why uh, for young venture capitalists out there who are like, hey, you know, got the opportunity to go big here. Yeah. Um, for that, it matters for slightly different reasons in the short term versus the long term. In the long term, the reason it matters is, is that larger funds are harder to make a good multiple on. And so, you know, your ability to be, to be terrific at what you do, which is returning more capital, lots more capital than you got. What's terrific? If you were to put a multiple, you got a, you guys think, do a I 450, think, $500 million fund, something in that range. If, I you, think? Have a, if you have a $450 million fund, um, I think terrific is anything north of six to eight X net. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's right. Put you in the top 5%, top 2%. Which, which by the way, you know, all of the graphs that every academic throws out there, like if you're not in the, if you're not out on that right hand end of the curve, it's pretty uncertain. It's worth the lockup frame and the risk right now. All of that has gotten mushed about by a total overabundance of capital trying to get into the system for the last 10 years, right? Yeah. But that's it in the long term. I think there are actually short-term reasons that the, that the big fund size back then, right? And we can talk about whether that's still true now or not. I mean, I think yeah. it's an interesting question. But back then, the other reason it, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do is like, if you have too much money, you want to put it to work. Hmm. And so you end up lowering your bar, right? You end yeah. up as a firm being like, oh, we raised a bunch more money. We got to go hire some people to be investors. Like, I don't know about you. Like, I, it is really hard to tell whether someone coming into an organization is going to be a great investor or not, right? Like, they, the great investors over time have come from every different walk of life possible, <sighs> right? PhDs in chemistry, yeah. journalists, you, the whole Michael nine Moritz. yards. Yeah, you, you got, got everything. It. You got it, right? And so you end up hiring a bunch of new people who they come in, you've got too much money. They start putting money to work. They don't know what they're doing. Your bar goes like, it's just, and then you're like, the thing that's worse than investing in something that's not good is then having to be with it for 10 years, Mm. right? Like it's just the gift that keeps on taking. It's just no fun. Yeah. So, um, and it, I, I suppose it to be different if the average venture deal were good, not mm-hmm. mediocre. Right. Right. But like if, if the whole point about venture from a portfolio perspective is how do you get as far away from the median as possible? Yeah. <laughs> right. Like you, you got to keep your standards high and value your time more than it, more than anything. Now, I think n- you now today have deal staying private longer mm. so like we have four healthcare it deals that are north of 400 million revenue each private those would have been in their fifth year of being public it, in the back first then, cycle back then you got yeah, it you go public i mean the dot-com area went public with 25 to 50 million in revenue yeah so b- before it got really frothy <laughs> and then, yeah. then you then you went public with 25 million of round trip revenue Oh right. yeah, we, right. we know about that. You give uh, <laughs> give fifty million to AOL. AOL invest fifty million. You buy fifty million. Where I mean, we literally were talking about round tripping on the All In podcast, my other podcast, the other day. Because, um, actually, were we talking about it on the pod, or we were talking about it maybe in the group chat? Because if you're buying cloud credits from a certain company, and you're spending three million a day on cloud credits, and they're investing in your company. Yeah, it gets well, it's, 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 you're, yeah, you're a little tied together there in some manner. I mean, the SEC might look at that and say, "Would well, you, you like you, you you're getting this? This is the whole thing that um, who is it that uh, Matt Levine, who I love reading, is talking about? You know, on you know FTX's making their own coins, you yes. know, and buying one of them, and that's the of course then it's worth you know a billion dollars. Um, so like sure. The, Right, like it would be thing. like one of your biotech companies. Like everybody in the company 
buying a Theranos blood test every day. Not that the your company, but like yeah, yeah, everybody yeah, in the yeah. company is yeah. going to do a Theranos blood. All the v- the VCs who invested in the company are going to buy a million blood tests. It's like exactly. wait a second, <laughs> exactly. You How does it. that work? <laughs> exactly. As a startup, you know growth is critical. Having outstanding growth metrics can solve so many problems for you. And the fastest growing startups know what metrics matter and how to influence them, how to move the needle. Well, if you want to supercharge your growth, go check out Velocity Growth. It is a marketing consultancy that'll help you attract, activate, and retain your customers. So they're going to help you build a growth model. Then they're going to help you launch and optimize high ROI paid search and social campaigns, building out an organic growth playbook, including SEO and content strategies, increasing conversion rates and all that good stuff, how you should run experiments so you can learn faster than your competitors. They're going to basically build your growth playbook with you. Velocity Growth has helped hundreds of founders and startups supercharge their marketing growth game. And it's super important for you to figure this out. It's not enough to build a great product, build a great team, but you need that brand to grow. And that means you need to have a playbook. Twist listeners are going to get $500 off any growth audit or monthly growth package from Velocity Growth. They basically charge you per month. They'll even give you a free 30-minute growth strategy session just for mentioning Twist, E-W-I-S-T. So I want you to go to velocitygrowth.com slash twist and get $500 off your first growth audit or monthly package now with the promo code twist. It's a great company. I'm an investor in it. Uh, you're really going to enjoy your time with the team over there. They're super smart. Uh, velocitygrowth.com slash twist did you see theranos by the way what did you think i I did not see it and it was so funny for for like five years so i didn't see it nor did i seek it out but not because i knew anything about elizabeth holmes just because i didn't like the business like you're Mm. competing with LabCorp and quest it's a high volume commodity business which like it's a hard place to start like innovative small companies it's hard to compete in in a high volume, low margin game, right? You're starting Um, a burger restaurant against McDonald's and Burger King. You're starting a soda pop company against Coke and Pepsi. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, How's that gonna work out? And so for like five years, I'd have people, you know, like, oh, you do healthcare, you're out in the Valley. Are you an investor in Theranos? Like, (sighs) no, I'm not. And they'd look at me and be like, oh, that's disappointing. I I thought you were a good investor. your job, yeah. yeah. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> exactly when did you first hear the buzz around well this is obviously not reality and something this is a fugazi um so because it was uh, back yeah, channeling around i was at totally. dinner parties people were like hey this doesn't seem legit that's like yeah it's like like they're not well not at all when in any in, in any in any industry subsegment, when people talk a big game and don't ship mm. for an extended period of time you're like, well, I don't understand. Like, why, why no shipping, right? Like, why can't I use this sort of thing? And every once in a while, people, you know, you, you'd go into the Walgreens on University Avenue in Palo Alto and try and get a test done. And, you know, you get something different there. Um, so it's probably, you know, a couple of years before the Wall Street Journal article broke. Um, mm. It was just getting sort of long, long in the tooth on the style over substance. Mm. Yeah, I, the one I saw was uh, Jean-Louis Gassier, uh, who worked for, uh, he worked for Jobs, he ran Apple in France, okay. mm-hmm. and uh, he lived by Stanford, and um, went for a blood test at Stanford, and he went for a Theranos test, and then he compared the results, pretty, pretty big delta, yeah. then he did it again, and he wrote another blog post, then he emailed Theranos, and gets no answer, and um there was a term that we used to have here in Silicon Valley called due diligence. Yeah. Uh, here's the, here's uh by the way, here's his piece. Yeah, his piece. Uh, this is yeah, 2015. 2015. And it's like, um, yeah, a blogger who is not an investor in the company figured it out by using the product. What was yeah. the diligence process like, you know, in each of these cycles and how does the diligence the time you have to understand what's going on at the company, how has that changed? And then how have you kept your discipline in a world where, you know, uh, doing diligence maybe yeah. is best described as a lost art? Yeah, right. Um, l- at least a less valued one. Um, so again, goes some of it goes back to fun size, right? Like if you're, if you, if you've constrained yourself, you're like, look, I'm going to do one or two deals a year. 
right? Um, you have the time. Ah, so that's step one. You right? have to have the time. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. And then step two is, you know, do you have a, a willing receptor on the other side of the equation to spend the time with you? Um, and for me, it's actually a fascinating discussion with entrepreneurs. Um, when you're like, look, I want to do a bunch of diligence. And by the way, you should want me to do it too. Right. And there's some set of folks who are like, dude, look, I just want to get this financing closed and I want to be done with it. And I kind of understand it. Right. Mm. It's, it, but, but at that point, you're getting a financing closed. You're not bringing a partner on to try and help you build the business. Mm. And to me, that's what the company diligence on me is, mm. right? Is like they should want to spend the time to figure out how I think and, you know, whether I'm really all that I say I am. The, the founder of Sequoia said, uh, like, there's, here's a, I said to rule off at one point, here's like uh, four quadrants how likable a founder is, how easy they are to get along with, um, easy and then higher difficult. Mm -hmm. And then here's how effective they are at their job as a founder. Mm -hmm. Not effective, really effective. And uh, he said, one of these quadrants is where we see our biggest success. Uh, yeah. I think you can guess which quadrant is. So maybe you could speak to the unique nature of the great entrepreneurs and maybe the challenge sometimes of working with you know, really the, the best of them uh, and how agreeable they are or not and how you've navigated that. Yeah. So, so I think they would say I'm not all that agreeable. So we're probably pretty simpatico on the, yeah. on the, on the whole thing. But it is, look, the, the best founders, certainly thinking long term, right? Um, certainly giving everything they can to the business, putting the business in front of themselves. Mm. but they're also always looking for what's wrong and that's mm. kind of what makes them sort of low level me too low level disagreeable all the time right you're like mm. okay actually like what's going well is fine i'm not going to spend a ton of time celebrating a lot of stuff but yeah you do that at all hands every once in a while etc but like i'm actually focused on what's the next horizon mm. that i need to tackle mm. um and it's to me the 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 long time that we spend, I spend with entrepreneurs before investing is, is understanding how they think about that sort of stuff. Mm. So that I, we like, we talk about the business, like what, what, what do we, what do we want to do? Why do we want to do it? And let's, let's, let's argue about, yeah. let's argue about some things. Let's argue about how we should price this. Let's argue about what features should be, who should we be selling to? Like, how should we, how should we measure ourselves? The ability to debate to argue important issues is a prerequisite in this relationship between a capital allocator and a founder. I think it should be. Yeah. You have to be able to argue also in good faith and you have to be able to really doggedly fight and change positions. There's an intellectual flexibility that you are required to have in a dynamic environment, whether it's biotech or startups, whatever it happens to be. Healthcare, T, enterprise software, take your pick yeah. for sure. And you need to, and the, the, the other thing I think you need to be is to be led by data when data comes mm -hmm. right yeah. rather than be like oh well this was my this is my position i'm you know i have some ego in this position so we're going to stick with it right like ah uh, like this bad money after good this sunken cost bad fallacy time. bad time over good uh, after good time yeah the sunken cost fallacy is totally very real in what we do you could spend two years working on something and then the obvious path the exit ramp off that bad idea to a genius idea yeah. sitting right there I mean, right. I mean apple being perhaps the greatest example in history it's like well a gadget an iphone dwarfed all revenue from their pc on every desk you got it and it just took you know someone like jobs to realize it yeah. right no i think it's actually true like so you know the uh, you know and in those arguments nothing's personal right you're talking mm. about issues topics and comfort with ambiguity and uncertainty and being non-consensus like i uh, think the like for the first three or four years of any really interesting startup you're non-consensus because mm. if you were consensus someone else has already done it it's bigger etc right and so the really interesting thing is 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 when when any of these companies transitions from non-consensus to consensus like the rest of the world sees it tolerance for ambiguity and being non-consensus.
Mm-hmm. These are very hard cognitive um, disuncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It, it, and this is when you think about going through a war, you know, when you're in that foxhole, it's like, hmm. Well, totally. Right. Like, and you see it in adventure or go forward <laughs> or stay. <laughs> and you see it, you see it in, in all of the private investing world now. Like it was part of the, it was part of the bull run momentum investing. Right. Yep. Um, but when the tide goes out, like it is now, um, momentum investing swings way back the other way. And mm. so this notion of um, being willing to, to put out more capital into mm. businesses, right? Ah. Uh, now, is a non- it's a non-consensus decision today. What's your decision today when you're oh. sitting here today, Brian? Oh, totally, totally putting out capital. You're excited. Again. You oh, see yeah. the opportunity. I, For sure. This, I, I'm literally raising my fourth fund right now. I'm doing it publicly and I'm investing. I'm meeting with more founders. Ever, and my eyes are so bright open. I'm like, this is like 2009, 2010 when I found Calm and Uber yeah. and Robinhood. And I'm like, these founders are so focused. These products are so transcendent. And look at the prices. And all hubris has left the room. Yeah, right? there's no bullshit artists. We're, exactly. I mean, all the theatrics are gone. It's yeah. like, you can get a cab in a shorter period of time and pay and see the cab coming to you. I'm like, great, let's go. You know, like just, oh, you can sequence the, the human genome. Uh, and it was a hundred million and it's going to be a million and then it's going to be 10,000 and it's going to be a hundred. Okay, great. Yeah. This, let's pull that string and see where it leads us. Yeah. Now is the greatest time to place bets, For sure. but it's a scary time to be an LP in a fund. It's a scary time to place a bet. It is, it, it is a scary time to place the bet because, well, be, because nobody likes to look, no, no, human being on planet earth likes to look stupid right mm. and the, and there's a false sense of that you won't look stupid in the bull run right and there's a false sense that you will look stupid mm. in the in the current market because yep. it's all bad news here and there that is such a great insight for capital allocators i'm just thinking about my own psychology and really the psychology of placing bets and this fear of looking stupid, it, you know, you're yeah. in a poker game, you've got, you don't have the best hand, you got some range of poker hands and you call somebody yeah. goes, you know, raises and you call them, you got to turn your cards over and see if you made the right decision. And if you are not willing to have that absolutely acidic feeling <laughs> in your stomach when <laughs> right, you play right. that bad. A little bit of bile poke up oh, into your throat. It's just like, <laughs> uh, okay, this company has run out of cash. Nobody will fund them, and I'm going to give them that I'm more money. I'm going to give right. them that twelve. T- take me to that scariest moment when you when you when you place that bet in any of the three wars that you lived through. Any um, of those where you pl- placed the bet and it worked out, just you know. But you, you did have that bile coming up, making you sure. feel that like, geez, where's the Pepto? Can I get sure? A this is well, you know, brutal. as as a firm mm. trying to think, we did the first. We did half of the seed round of Cloudflare. Twenty wow, ish. Yeah, I think nine. What a great I think, it was, I think it was December of twenty nine. Mm. Okay, mm. right, Matthew, Michelle. You know, right out of Harvard Business School. Blah blah. Nothing there. Back mm. of a napkin. Yeah. Um, and you know, they had actually. It's so funny. Um, they had done a one of those summer programs in the offices of a different venture firm mm. right wow. who didn't who didn't fund them because they were doing a cdn in the face of akamai <laughs> and they were going to well, do were, dns right, writing, that, routing you, i was on the board of dyne at the time dyn okay. in, mm-hmm. in new hampshire and i remember cloudflare coming up and i was like wow those guys seem pretty clever and we were like talking about them like but yeah it felt like a derivative business or a copycat business and it turned out to be an exceptional business did Absolutely. What was why? Why did it? Why why they do so well? Just better execution, well, I guess, is what it um, comes down to. More so, dog and management. So, um, really hardware to software, mm. right? Like number one and two, um, the team was purely focused on themselves, on what they could do well, how they could do it, not any of the hype around the world, and frankly. For you know, it wasn't the easiest thing to get funded for a couple rounds, mm. right? And you're and then you're getting into 2013, 14, and like 
uh, uh, prices are going way up and you're like, wow, this, our prices aren't going up that much. I wonder, mm. like, I wonder, I had the same thing at 10X Genomics, single cell genomics yeah. business, right? Like, I kind of like, honestly, it's weird about me. Like, I like being so non-consensus that people leave you alone for a little while, right? That's until nice, you, yeah. until you get your together enough to be able to do something interesting and defend yourself, right? What's your best advice to founders who are looking at this market and saying, huh, should I take the jump? This is like the eye of the storm. It's a hurricane. I got this little boat. I think. Do I leave the dock? Yeah. I think you should only start a company if you can't stop yourself from doing it in any okay. market. Like, okay. I think, I think you need to find yourself in the shower, on your run, you know, out at the movie with your girlfriend thinking about the company. Right. Obsession. Right? Obsession. Right. It has to be Straight like, up. and literally don't spend your time trying to figure out positive proof points for your idea. Yeah. Just go after, can I kill it? Mm. Right. And if you're like, golly, like I can't, I, I got to do this. I'm going to feel, yep. I'm going to feel terrible if I don't go yeah. do this, then definitely go do it. I think this is the greatest advice you could possibly give to a founder. It is the absolute prerequisite of if you should start a company is that you can't not start the company and you will know that. Yeah. And it, honestly, you'll also know when you're faking it. Exactly. When you want to do this and theatrically. You will know. It's in your heart, you know, it's in yeah. your soul. Like you just, if you, if you're showing up for your day job at Hooli or Google or whatever company and you're, it's soul crushing and you're literally, you know, in a secret window in another browser on a VPN working on your startup, like get the hell out of there. Yeah. And uh, go meet with Venerock or come to my accelerator. Exactly. And uh, let us place or, or a bet on just, you. And honestly, just find, find somebody who you believe will be your partner for the next decade. It really is a partnership. Brian, this has been amazing. I want to have you back on the show. This is like, I, I don't think you and I have ever met. No, it'd be funny. This I've heard was lots incredible. of great things. Thank you for I, this. I mean, literally, I'm, I have like five, I know when I have a great guest because I have five blog post ideas and I have notes that I'm taking like, oh, I have to sharpen my sword a bit based on the lessons you've made and, you know, having gone through two more wars than I have. I really well, appreciate you. you being so candid. I appreciate it. Uh, there it is. Brian Roberts, everybody. And uh, yeah, come on again in like six months. You got yeah, it. I'm Brian, six months. I want to just continue this conversation <laughs> and we'll see you all next time on okay. This Week in Startups. Bye-bye. See ya.